0: Hello, I'm Terry Schultz, and I am Channeling Brussels, getting newsmakers, movers and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble, and have real conversations about the critical foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. And this episode of Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. Now, this show comes to you in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. I've been working from home for weeks already, doing my best to flatten the curve and keep the coronavirus at bay. This episode is going to bring some uplifting news, though, for those who've been following the trials and travails of North Macedonia's efforts to join the European Union and NATO. Because last week, the Spanish Parliament gave its approval to Skopje, becoming NATO's 30th member. And now, this week, it appears the European Union is really about to give its approval for both North Macedonia and Albania to open membership talks. It's been a very long road. Skopje's been on this path since 2005 and seen a lot of disappointing setbacks. Before the coronavirus hit Europe, I was lucky enough to run down to Skopje and get an interview with the man who has headed up the delegation for negotiations with the EU, Buyar Osmani. He's also the vice president for European affairs and the vice president of the co-ruling ethnic Albanian party, the Democratic Union for Integration. As an aside, Osmani is also a medical doctor. And when I was in his office in late February, he was preparing to call on politicians to scale back their campaigns for early elections, which were then scheduled for April 12th, to get ahead of the coronavirus. Now the elections have been postponed. But let's get back to the more upbeat news, the expected approval this week of the 27 EU governments to let North Macedonia and Albania into the fold. Here's the background to that long battle from Vice President Bujara Osmani.
1: Thank you very much for for making time uh, uh, to speak with me today. Um, It's a really important time uh, in North Macedonia's future. What do you think is going to happen this time?
2: Well, after what happened in October in Brussels, we are careful optimists. Uh, though we, are, we were and we are absolutely certain that we have fulfilled all, ne- all necessary criteria to start accession negotiations. We are a long time in this process, almost 20 years since we have signed the Stabilization Association Agreement, 15 years candidate with 10 consecutive recommendations from the Commission to start accession negotiations, but each of those recommendations failed in the Council due to the veto from Greece. And when we finally resolved the name issue, we expected that in June 2018, as it was agreed, to have a pass to move forward to the next chapter, to start accession negotiations, not to join EU, but just to start a long time uh, process. Unfortunately, EU could not reach a consensus in June 2018, again in June 2019, and again in October 2019. So, uh, there is a saying here in the country, If you are burned with milk, then you try to cold even the yogurt. So, uh, you try to do what with the yogurt? To to, to make it colder or to. uh, (laughs) So what? uh,
1: I'm not sure how well that translates from from Macedonia, (laughs) but anyway, I think people get the idea.
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, though we are absolutely convinced that even after October, we are even more prepared having adopted uh, the necessary laws in the parliament just few days before the parliament uh, got dissolved and the circumstances within the european union are improved i think they have realized the mistake the historical mistakes that the eu uh, has done in october i mean we have seen an unprecedented va- wave of solidarity among all member states about this uh, the the unfair uh, treatment of North Macedonia, especially after delivering its part of the agreement. Uh, So, all preconditions are here to have a positive decision in March, but uh, obviously Europe is not Europe that uh, was a few years ago, and the decision-making process is becoming more and more complex. So, we will not raise expectations again, since the much we, the higher we raise the expectation, the higher the frustration of our people Uh, becoming, and this reflects the entire EU mood and the entire EU credibility in the country. So, what I can say is that we have done our job, we have done our homework, now the ball is in the EU, uh, EU field, and they uh, we are hopeful that they will make the right decision.
1: It's pretty bold. I read this also in your um, acting prime minister's comments, strategic mistake, historical mistake. So you're saying, OK, Brussels, you have a chance to fix it now.
2: This was not uh, our statement. If you follow the uh, the reflection of entire EU, uh, EU after the uh, October uh, disaster, I would say. You have a statement of then President of the Commission, President of the Council. They were saying furious. That, absolutely, that EU has done a strategic and historical mistake that will have a, a, a ramification of consequences in the, in the future.
1: Have you been reassured? You said that you got a lot of solidarity from other members. Did they feel guilty? Were they embarrassed? And- have you been behind the scenes? Have you been reassured that, that there was enough pressure put on these three countries and anybody else who may be questioning it, that this is not going to happen again, even if we know that that day, it, 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 you know, it can't be guaranteed?
2: Well, I mean, uh, we are trying to be uh, reliable partners with EU. So we need to understand each other in, in good and in bad times. So we are not trying to use this and over exaggerate these difficulties that EU is facing internally. Uh, What the hesitating member states have said is that they are not arguing our preparedness to join EU, but rather the preparedness of EU to accept new member states. That doesn't make Uh, anybody feel better. (laughs) So they want to change the methodology of accession negotiations. And having in mind that this methodology has been uh, published by the Commission, and uh, it's accepted by France as by, by, by most of the EU member states, then I don't see an additional reason why this process would have uh, not uh, moved forward now in, uh, in March. So yes, we are talking, I was in Paris, I was in Zagreb and uh, all, uh, most of the member states in this period of time uh, presenting what we have done in meantime and also getting more guidance in terms of creating a little bit of predictability here, people are confused. People are expecting uh, what's going to uh, happen and uh, they are reassuring us now that the methodology has been adopted it's more easier. Uh, the difficulty remains about how the countries will treat us and Albania as a couple or, as, uh, or the, uh, they will consider any kind of decoupling. We are trying to argue that it is important for the region that both countries should uh, be granted this uh, green light to start accession negotiations, since this will bring a new dynamic to the entire, uh, to the entire uh, region. So, things look uh, positive. Uh, But until the last moment, we are taking, uh, we are trying to be careful and not to raise again, as I said, the expectations of people.
1: Pro-EU sentiment dropped dramatically after the rejection here. In Albania, it seems like they kind of shrugged and said, well, maybe next time. Um, But you had to go through such painful changes with Prespa. And now I see in your press that there is a small group of opposition politicians, I don't know what you call VMRO, um, saying, look, if the EU doesn't keep their promises, why should we keep our promises? Is there a risk that okay. citizens, you have, there were a lot of people who still aren't happy with Prespa, who still think you gave up too much. Is there a risk that they start saying, we are going back to, we are going back to pre-Prespa?
2: There is a story behind this. When we took over the government, we went. The first visit of ours was in Brussels. We went there and we discussed there with the good. leadership of the EU Commission, and there was an agreement there. The agreement was: if you deliver, we will deliver. So this sentence sort of became the fuel of our engine in the last three years. We came home and we said to our people: we understand that it's difficult to do these changes, changes, but we have an agreement with Brussels that if we deliver, they will deliver. And this was the incentive why people accepted it, why political elite became sort of encouraged and brave to do these historical difficult and very sensitive issues. We even put this agreement into referendum question. We said to our people, are you for joining EU and NATO with the new name? We signed Prespa due to this agreement. We signed the agreement with Bulgaria based on this agreement all our narrative was based on disagreement with uh, with uh, eu and when when we 100% fulfilled our part of the agreement eu failed to fulfill its own part and of course this will reflect the credibility of eu in the country in the region and even uh, even more uh, since uh, you know, people started to to, to to reflect whether it was worthy to do all these uh, changes. And of course, now political party will try to political parties of different part of the spectrum will try to to use this emotion of uh, of people, and to argue whether we did uh, uh, we had a good diplomacy, whether whether we had a good strategy as a uh, as a uh, government to do these changes, and then EU not to uh, reflect. But as much as this would uh, sort of uh, influence negatively on our credibility as a government, it would influence even more over the credibility of EU in the region and even beyond uh, beyond, uh, the region. Uh, So, but I think EU is now aware of this and uh, I'm very positive that uh, they are going to uh, correct sort of this mistake of October and then we will move uh, jointly into this new chapter.
1: I mean, I I know that people will try to exploit it. It's not just people inside Macedonia. It's not just... um, There are also, and I know that that your government and that responsible politicians here don't try to overplay this angle, but... Moscow does have a hand here. I mean, it's something that Montenegro has to think about, Albania has to think about, and North Macedonia does as well. Um, your country has been um, infamously the source of some of these troll farms. I mean, let's talk about what a role disinformation plays. So you can say this, the EU decision didn't help your positive message. How much of a spike in that in that kind of problem did you see that, that um, it's very easy now for anti-EU uh, forces outside the country to say, they don't want you, but maybe we do. I, I mean, is that, that, is that a siren, siren call for anyone know, here?
2: The EU credibility and favorability in the country was based on, was based on consistency, on predictability and on fairness in our uh, relations. And of course, there were, uh, were attempts during the referendum question from different, uh, sources, whether it's uh, uh, Russia or other uh, countries, to play on this card that you are doing too much and it's not worthy, and they re- will not, uh, you will not be rewarded uh, for this. But due to this high credibility of EU in the country during the referendum, we managed it. Uh, I know that people say there was not enough turnout uh, in the referendum, uh, less than forty percent, but seven hundred thousand people. Voted yes for Prespa agreement, and uh, there is no political party in the past that has uh, uh, won more than uh, more than uh, 700,000 votes. So this is absolutely majority of people who supported Prespa. They did not support it because they liked it; they supported it because they trusted EU. And they trusted EU due to reason, since in the past, yes, there was a consistency, there was predictability in our relations. And now you see a drop in the favorability of citizens in relations to EU. And now you have a space, and argument, third parties to say, we told you. We told you that this is not going to uh, happen, so whether it's it uh, worthy, I don't think that people will shift to some other political, uh, geopolitical uh, centers, especially now I'm not trying to be sub- subjective since I'm Al- Albanian, but uh, Albanians who are 100% pro-Westerners in the region, in the country... Above 90%, are, something uh, like absolutely, this. Absolutely, even, even more. <laughs> 98% I, would say, I think women... You, usually in the polls is a st- statistical uh, error. Uh, if if it's less than 100%. So we are keeping sort of the course of the country and the region. The ethnic albanian uh, macedonians yes, you mean. Uh, ethnic albanians in 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 macedonia yeah. as well but also the majority of macedonians are pro westerners. Uh, so I don't think there will be a huge shift but this weakness is making us more fragile for these malign interferences in the, in, 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 in the country and in the region. Or
1: also the case of Turkey where you're kept waiting so long with, uh, with you know, Brussels saying we want you, we don't want you, we want you, you don't want you, that, that simply people say we're sick of it. Because when I talk to my friends here, they do say we're tired. We used to be excited, we were, you know, we the sacrifice of Prespa was huge and painful, but we thought that the light was there at the end of the tunnel. Now people just say, we're tired. I say, do you care anymore? We're exhausted, we're fatigued. We don't even want to talk about
2: it anymore. There is a saying in EU that there is an enlargement fatigue. Yeah. I think here uh, a patient's fatigue is happening. People, are, it's true, that are too uh, tired of being stuck. We understand that maybe we are not ready to join EU tomorrow. We do understand that we need to do reforms. We are a young country, we need to reform ourselves. What we want to know is that there is meritocracy, there is a conditionality is being respected, that there is a predictability of the process, that if you are doing these uh, reforms, you will move forward. What we are seeing at the moment, 2018, we did a cross-comparison with other Western Balkan countries where we are in this EU journey. We were better than Serbia and Montenegro in political criteria, in economic criteria, and in transposition of acquis. And we have not started yet the negotiations. Transposition
1: of EU acquis, EU laws into into our legislation.
2: Uh, At the moment, even without starting accession negotiations, we have uh, harmonized 30% of our legislation is already EU legislation. And this is not our obligation before starting accession negotiations. This is just a reflection of our enthusiasm, our commitment to join uh, to join EU. But of course, if you hit the wall too many times, then this will cause a frustration that will cum- accumulate and will become uh, a chronic sort of uh, mood in the country. And this is the fear.
1: Why did the government call for new elections? Why, why not stay and... Um, I mean, because now they may be punished. I mean, I guess if, if, the, if the answer is yes in March, they may, they, they may be rewarded, but um, why, why not just stay in power?
2: Since, as I said, the foundation of our entire narrative, of our policies and politics and governing in this three, period, three years period of time was this agreement, if you deliver, we will deliver. EU did not fulfill its part of the agreement. But this government so, did. So Yes, but we had to go to people and ask them what we do from now on since obviously we told them that if we do this and this, EU will reward us. This did not happen. So we need to go back to people and ask uh, ask them what we do further. I don't think that people have changed their mind. I know that there is a uh, uh, sort of drop in popularity and credibility of EU, but uh, they do understand that uh, EU is uh, suffering from internal crises like Brexit, like uh, debates over the budget and, uh, and 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 little and divisions north east west uh, uh, east and we do understand that. So, but I think that is important that now during the mandate of this government to have a positive de- decision, since a decision in March is different from the decision after the election in June. And I'm not saying this just for the party interest of uh, of the in the elections, but a decision in March is attached to this narrative, to this agreement I was talking about, to the role of EU credibility, leverage and incentive in changing the region in a positive uh, direction. A decision after election is detached from this narrative. It's and an, an a sort of a technical assessment whether we have fulfilled some criteria or not. But it's not part of this uh, movement, I would say, that EU changes the way how countries in the region uh, talk to each other, how countries relate to each other, uh, how is their democracy and their, uh, I- their interethnic and intercultural uh, relations. Therefore, I think it's everything is not lost there is a last chance in march to completely correct and repair uh, this agreement and to make it uh, to make it alive
1: you called it a last chance
2: for the narrative
1: people won't believe you anymore if if they if they delay it again you think or what do you mean
2: i think that the narrative will fail and this the is narrative, the narrative
1: if we do this they do this the because narr- people can no, understand uh, this the, setback the, the, the or? N-
2: narrative is if we behave in a European manner, uh, Europe will also behave yeah. in that manner toward yeah. us. Uh, therefore, is a last chance. If it happens later on, it's going to be part of a different narrative, part of a different set of relations between us and, and, and EU. And therefore, I'm sort of stressing the importance of having a decision now in March, just to save the narrative, to save the agreement. And agreement is the a foundation of the credibility of the EU in the country and in the region. If it happens in March, you can use it as an argument for Serbia and Kosovo. If it happens in June, you cannot use it as an argument for Serbia and, uh, and Kosovo. Oh,
1: I explain that a little better.
2: Since, you know, what would be, the if, it, if it's not happening in March, the message to the regional leaders would be, is it's not worthy to make difficult compromises. It's not worthy to go against the stream of the river.
1: Is the stream of the river anti-EU?
2: No, the stream of the river is more nationalistic. Right, okay, yeah, I
1: see. All right, not Uh,
2: anti-EU, but more
1: self-protective.
2: So to sign Prespa was against the stream of the river in the country. To sign Kosovo-Serbian agreement is against the stream of the river in Serbia and in uh, in Kosovo and in order to incentivize the leaders to do this kind of difficult uh, compromises of course you need to make to to create preconditions for better life life after the, uh, those compromises the message to the region will be that if you are populist if you are nationalist you will stay in power and it's more th- uh, pragmatically beneficial uh, for them rather than to do the opposite and therefore uh, this narrative is important because it's sending uh, the message to the region and to the leaders in the region that uh, the region is uh, the time is to do reconciliation between nations in the country though it might be unpopular but this is the only uh, rewarding uh, path for the uh, for the nations and for the country,
1: but is <coughs> you said it, um, about life being better for the average citizen w- with the EU prices go up. I mean there are. Uh, is life better? I mean, you must know a wide range of people here. Is life better? Can people look at their lives and say the decisions that we've made under Prespa, the decision to go to the EU, there may be some pain in the short no, term economically? No, no,
2: we, no? I will give you uh, an analysis that we have done just a few months ago uh, in this institution. And we have projected what would be the country 15 in 2035 with EU and without EU there is an absolute difference. I will will tell you a number only. The life expectancy in 2035 without EU will be in North Macedonia 79 years. With EU is going to be 82 years. And this is a scientific projection. (laughs) And you're a doctor. Uh, This is a scientific projection. Let's talk about the the GDP and economic convergence with EU Uh, due to uh, the rule of law, due to uh, economic and political predictability in the country, due to foreign investment, due to access to uh, pre-structural funds, or I would say more uh, pre-accession funds, the GDP would reach 50% of the EU average GDP with EU and will remain 30% without accession negotiations. So we have objective parameters that... Are telling us that with EU the life of ordinary people is way better than it would be without EU. even
1: in the short term because a lot of times when you have to make these changes if you look at the Baltic states they had to make some very difficult economic decisions when they joined the EU and some people were, were hurt you know they had to cut pensions and i mean i don't know exactly what the what the particulars are here but will there be short term pain or was prespa as bad as it gets well,
2: uh, for us is not short short term it's, as i said we are in this process of association with eu from 2001 when we have signed the agreement on stabilization association so we are doing this association with eu in the last 20 uh, years dozens of institutions have been created due to this uh, association with eu there is an uh, institutional convention with uh, EU during this period of time. So we have adjusted already our system to to EU. And as I said, 30% of EU legislation is part of our uh, legislation. Uh, So we're just going to continue in this path, but with more dynamic, with more uh, access to funds, with more predictability and with more attractiveness toward foreign investment.
1: So when we look back on this period, it may just be a hiccup. I mean, it was hugely disappointing, but. Between October and March, if things get reversed, it will not have been such a long period and any any final thoughts anything i, um, I like I said when I think about the NATO the NATO accession and and the numerous promises uh, made from Brussels, it's hard not to feel bad for Skopje um, and and the people here and like you said, you're not trying to raise expectations. Are you saying that it will happen or are you just kind of keeping your head down and <laughs>
2: I think it's better not to, uh, not to say uh, anything in terms of uh, what will happen better for the EU leaders to do that, since it, uh, it doesn't depend on us anymore. We have nothing to deliver more so we can convince whether Netherlands, whether Denmark, whether France. We did whatever was asked from us. Now as I said, ball is in their field. They should tell to our people what should we expect.
1: All right, that's all our time. Thank you Thank very you much. much.
2: Thank
0: you. That's North Macedonia's Vice President for European Affairs, Buyar Osmani, discussing his country's long road to European Union membership, a road that is expected to take a new turn this week with an invitation to open accession negotiations. Thanks to Vice President Osmani for his time during a busy political and medical situation. Thanks as always to the Atlantic Council for sponsoring Channeling Brussels. And thanks most of all to you for listening. I'm Terry Schultz. Join me next time.